The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio Freedom 106.5. 33 minutes after 7. As I said to you all earlier on, we do have a special interview at this point in time. There's a lot of discussion going on about Venezuela and Guyana and, and uh, therein, of course, uh, Dragon Gas deal and our position and some of the things that we need to discuss and geopolitics and uh, who else said the CARICOM perspective, a, a lot of different things. And joining us now is a gentleman who, um, whenever we speak to him, he brings uh, a rationalized approach uh, perspective to many of these discussions and boy oh boy this Venezuela Guyana one is is if ever there was a, an issue that we needed to have uh, a meticulous analysis of and, and probably uh, um, a measured response to it's this one and here to shed some some light on the discussion and that and other things as welcome back to our program former energy minister Kevin Ramnaran good morning to you nice to have you with us here this morning Hi, good morning. Um, are you hearing me? Yes, we're hearing you loud and clear. Okay, well, good morning. And it's certainly a, you know, very interesting topic and something which has, you know, gathered world attention. Mm -hmm. um, just, just this morning, the Financial Times has on their podcast, Guyana and Venezuela, um, it's being reported by the BBC and by CNN and so on. Of course, it's, it's, um, it's a case where one country is threatening another country's territorial integrity. And, you know, that, that is in violation of Article 2 of the United Nations Charter, right? And, you know, the whole purpose of the United Nations established as it was in the aftermath of World War II was to minimize military conflict around the world. Um, but but here we are, you know. So it is um, it is a matter I think which has implications for the region and implications for Trinidad and Tobago because we have <clears throat> dealings with both countries. So it is therefore you know it is reasonable that people in Trinidad would have would want to know and would have concerns as to what's happening there. Um, the referendum, as we all know, was on Sunday. There are mixed reports as to the outcome of that referendum. This this morning, the Guardian in the UK is suggesting that the turnout was very low, and that the Venezuelan government has you know overreported the turnout. Um, a view which I heard echoed by the vice president of Venezuela. So it is, but the referendum did happen, and of course, as we expected, the Venezuelans voted yes um or in favor of the five questions one of which was the creation of a new state a state within venezuela venezuela is a country made up of states and that state is called guyana esiquiba which would be that part of guyana right now called the esiquibo um and and they went so far to say that they would issue id cards to persons living i suppose guyanese nationals living in the Esequibo. So it is, um, nobody knows with certainty what will happen next. And, you know, in listening to the, the Financial Times podcast this morning, one of the things that the, the gentleman was saying, who is the, the reporter for Latin America, for the Financial Times, is that <clears throat> there, you know, there was a situation in the 1980s where there was a very unpopular government in Argentina. And this was a, a government which was which had come out of a military coup, the military um, junta that was leading Argentina in the 1980s. They had taken over, I think, since the 1970s. They had, obviously, they, they created a distraction to deal with their own unpopularity, and that distraction was the invasion of the Falkland Islands in, I think, 1982. So it, nothing is impossible. Um, nothing should be discounted. Um, all scenarios should be should be looked at. Um, the consensus from most of the experts I have spoken to is that they will not, Venezuela will not invade. They will not cross the border and occupy any part of Guyana. 
because they would be well aware of the consequences of that internationally. Um, but there is, you know, you, one could never discount fully all scenarios because you don't know, you know, what really is driving mm. um, the thought processes of people in the Venezuelan government at this point in time. So therefore, you know, we, we need to keep, I mean, this is, these are our, our closest neighbor is Venezuela. And Guyana is our, probably our second or third closest neighbor um, after Grenada. These are countries in our neighborhood. And um, we have felt in Trinidad and Tobago the repercussions of the destruction of the Venezuelan economy in the last 10 years. And it's pretty evident and pellucid everywhere we go in Trinidad, we see um, Venezuelan people here. Why are they here? They're here because of the economic hardships in their country. So that's that's the context, Satish. I've been listening to some of the callers and um, hearing their points of view. And of course, people are very informed these days, you know. Mm -hmm. um, this is a, a long historical dispute that goes back to, you know, almost 200 years. That was resolved in 1899 by international tribunal uh, of five judges. And those five judges were five of the most distinguished judges in the world at the time, um, including the, the chief justice, the chief justices of the United States and, and Great Britain. Um, and the 1899 award is what has been consistently rejected by which the 1899 award, which is what created the boundary is what is being has been consistently rejected by Venezuela since 1962. So they, they did not have a problem with it from 1862, but in 1962, they they suddenly um, raised their objection to the border with the United Nations. And we can get into why they did that. Um, but it has been, you know, it is now so the objection to the border has been with us now for, you know, 61 years, almost as long as Trinidad and Tobago has been independent. Mm. And it has cast a shadow over not just Guyana, but uh, the CARICOM region. And I think um, it was our first prime minister, Dr. Williams, who had warned in the mid-1970s about Venezuela's imperialistic ambitions for the Caribbean. Um, citing this, he cited this particular matter of the Esequibo, and there was also the um, a couple of the islands in the Caribbean Sea that Venezuela was laying claim to. An island called Bird Island <clears throat> was one of those islands. So as far back as the mid-1970s, Dr. Williams was aware um, of the, the inclinations in Venezuela towards this sort of, this sort of um, behavior. And here we are today in 2023. Nothing has changed. Mm. It, it's it's a it's a development that comes at a time that I think nobody expected it. Um, and and as you were speaking about the reporter and the possibility of it having some kind of relation to general elections or the popularity or lack thereof of the Maduro regime, is not something to discount. Anything is possible when it comes to politics, and we've had instances, as you outlined, in the past where. Um, politicians are, are not necessarily too far off from using anything at their disposal once it suits a purpose. Well, well, if we think about it logically, if you are Nicolas Maduro, what are your options? Mm -hmm. You have a, your option one is to stay in power. Option two is if you're not in power, if you come out of office, and you're living in Venezuela, more than likely, the new government of Venezuela is going to make life very difficult for you. Because a lot of a lot of things have happened in Venezuela over the last 10 years. Mr. Maduro is still um, on the U.S. State Department um, website as being wanted and so on, as are other members of his government. So it is likely that if they're not in government, they are either going to have to, if they stay in Venezuela, they're going to face possibly criminal charges or some legal action from the from the new government or there may be threats to their life and so on not having security or they may, ha may have to migrate and live in Cuba or 
Russia or North Korea or something like that. So therefore, the political objective of the Maduro administration would be to stay in government. And to that end, the United States State Department, high-ranking officials of the United States State Department who are actively tweeting in the last week, um, including Mr. Brian Nichols, who is the Under Secretary of State, um, they have all been suggesting that if the Maduro regime in Caracas does not comply with a roadmap that was signed off in Barbados a few months ago, if there's no compliance with that, then the sanctions will be reimposed. And the question naturally that flows from that is what is the what is the consequence therefore for the Dragon Deal, which is which has been moving forward as a result of the United States saying, okay, um, you know, in January 2023, at the start of this year, we had the news from the Prime Minister that the Dragon Deal could move forward because the U.S. had said, okay, Venezuela and Trinidad could go ahead and deal um, on this matter. And then there was the issue of the modality of payment. And Venezuela rejected payment in kind. And then in October, just two months ago, the U.S. again um, said, okay, payment could be had in cash. So what if that now is reversed? And Trinidad Tobago, um, through the Minister of Energy, has spent quite a lot of time, money and effort on this dragon deal. In fact, one would be one one would one would not be wrong to say that the dragon deal is the central pillar of the Rowley administration energy policy. They have made it probably the most important thing that they are pursuing. So what if all that falls apart? And one cannot discount the fact that there was always a lot of political risk associated with the Dragon Deal. And as Venezuela ramps up its its posture towards our CARICOM neighbor, it, it becomes more and more politically risky. So therefore, that's, that's where we, and if you ask what are the consequences for us, that's where we stand. On the other hand, I think it's no secret that there are hundreds of Trinidadian companies now in Guyana, doing business in Guyana, um, because of the, the booming oil industry in Guyana, right? So we, has a, we as a country have to be very careful how we balance our foreign policy. And it is a time for, as you said, you know, when you were referring earlier to the statements being made on the political platform, we have to be very mindful and careful about how we position Trinidad and Tobago in this seemingly more and more tense region that we are in. And, um, you know, it because we have interests everywhere. And at the end of the day, um, foreign policy of a country is really based on economic interest. Right? I mean, that's, as you know, that's how foreign policy has worked from the dawn of time, that countries pursue their economic interests. Right? Um, but at the same time, we do have an obligation to Guyana being members of CARICOM, being both founding members of CARICOM. CARICOM is 50 years old this year. The, the you know, I was, I, I have this, um I have this habit where I like to talk to people who are a lot older and wiser than me. So I, I spoke to Tria Trinan and Tobago's wise men in foreign policy. And um, I asked them, what was the greatest crisis ever faced by CARICOM in its 50 years? And the answer was unanimous. The 1983 revolution in Grenada, the assassination of Prime Minister Maurice Bishop, and the U.S. invasion. And if you throw your mind back 40 years, um, some of our callers may be able to do that. CARICOM was not united in 1983. CARICOM was divided on the U.S. invasion of Grenada. One would hope that you know, with 40 years now behind us, we are now a 50-year-old CARICOM, that there would be unification of purpose when it comes to, you know, well, the CARICOM Treaty, first of all, the revised Treaty of Shagaramas, which was 
signed in 2001, long after Grenada, calls for um, unified or a uniform position of the region on foreign policy. So one would hope that the region would unite behind Guyana, and I think the region has united behind Guyana. Venezuela, to some extent, has you know relations with many of the Caribbean, including Trinidad. Venezuela has different um, fuel supply arrangements with other Caribbean countries, um, variations of Petro-Caribbean, and so on. Jamaica has come out and unilaterally um, condemned Venezuela's actions in the referendum. Um, so most of the CARICOM countries have have been behind the CARICOM skirt, so uh, to use that metaphor, but Jamaica has openly come out and said, okay, Venezuela, back down, you know, behave yourself and so on. So again, in, in interesting times, but the bottom line, Satish, is that nobody knows mm. what Venezuela will do next. And yeah. I think that is the question which is a question of concern because, of course, you know, there's a a military asymmetry between the two countries. Guyana doesn't have much of an army compared to what Venezuela has. So, you know, but then Guyana has clearly um, aligned itself with some powerful friends. And you would have seen the picture, um, which I shared on Facebook a few days ago. Uh, there was a picture of the vice president of Guyana embracing the president of Brazil. And Brazil has Brazil is of course the, the the big the big the big player in Latin America, largest economy, largest population, largest landmass and so on. And of course Guyana and Brazil share border. And Brazil and Venezuela share border. And there's actually one point where all three countries, the borders of all three countries converge. And that point is Monk Roraima. So Brazil has interest in this matter, as does the United States, where Exxon and Chevron have have significant investments in the Starbuck block. It used to be Exxon and Hess, but Hess sold their position in the Starbuck block to Chevron. So Exxon and Chevron are, you know, quite possibly the two largest, so two of the three largest companies, oil companies in the United States, and. So therefore, the U.S. has interest in Guyana. Brazil has interest. Trinidad and Tobago has interest in Guyana. So it is, it is. Um, if Venezuela was to contemplate doing what we hope they don't do, then you know it begs the question: What does Brazil do, and what does the United States do? And these are these are natural questions that that, that people will ask if you're looking at all the scenarios that could um, ultimately pan out. But I'll stop there, and you know. No, well, I think uh, you you've done a pretty good job of of explaining what's going on and what's at stake because there are many people who don't understand what's going on with this thing, you know. Um, and you can hear it sometimes in the comments that people make that they're not too clear on yeah. exactly what's going on. All they know is that Venezuela won't take a part of Guyana, and that's that's all that they know. Um, but they yeah, need- well, so so just just for the interest of the listening public, um, one of the one of the great minds of the Caribbean is former Commonwealth Secretary General Sir Sridhar Ramphal. Mm-hmm. And he is now, you know, very much, he's about 94 years old. And he he wrote a book. And the name of the book is called The New Conquistadors. Right? And he sent a copy of this book to me. And the book is his his entire summary and experience on this matter because he was very much involved in this matter when he was Attorney General of Guyana in the 1960s. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, Venezuela had no problem with this border from 1899 to 1962. And then in 1962, they suddenly had, they raised this um, objection with the United Nations. And it, it had everything to do with the fact that Guyana was about to become independent. And it was the, and this is Ramphal's explanation of it, 1962 was the height of the Cold War. 
1962 was the year that the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, um, happened. I think it happened in late 1962. 1962 was when President Kennedy was in office and so on. And of course, um, we recently celebrated, you know, it's not celebrated, we recently marked um, the occasion of the his assassination 60, 60 years ago. So the United States and Venezuela at the time were close. And in the opinion of Mr. Ramphal, the United States got Venezuela to raise the objection because they were the United States at that time. And this is a totally different world, right? The United States at that time was fearful of another communist country merging in Latin America. We already had Cuba. And of course, the two main political movers in Guyana in 1962 were one, Dr. Jagan and two, Mr. Burnham, and both of them were leftists. Um, one would argue that Mr. Jagan may have been more leftist than Mr. Burnham. But it was an attempt to stall the independence of Guyana. And the Guyanese government at the time, which was led by Mr. Burnham and Mr. and, and Sir Sridhar Ramphal in 1966, agreed to sit with Venezuela and they signed something called the Geneva G Geneva Treaty, which was a mechanism really to, to talk to Venezuela um, to resolve this matter. And that, of course, never worked. That never worked. And of course, you know, we come all the way down to 2015. When oil was discovered, this matter of the border dispute was resuscitated by Venezuela. So it is something with a long history. I mean, even the 1899 award, which was an award made in Paris by an arbitral tribunal, um, very few people I see, nobody has been asking, what is Venezuela's problem with that award? Um, no, nobody seems to know. Um, their problem with the award stems from a memorandum that was written in the late 1940s and made public in 1949. And the memorandum was written by one of the lawyers for Venezuela in the arbitration of 1899. So he's now writing this thing almost 50 years later. And in the memorandum, his name was Mallet Prevost. In the memorandum, he alleged that there was collusion and corruption between the Russian chairman of the tribunal and the British judges and Great Britain to, to rob Venezuela of the Esequibo. And he asked that the memorandum only be made public after he died. And it, that, that's what they call the Mallet Prevost Memorandum. And that is what really drove Venezuela to bring up this whole issue and to challenge the 1899 award. And I mean, this thing has a history um, I'm in, I'm pretty much in contact with, um, you know, persons involved, heavily involved in this matter in Guyana. And this thing has a history going back to the Treaty of Tordesillas in um, 1494. Of course, you know, Columbus discovered a new world in 1492, and he did so on behalf of Spain. And we know our social studies and so on from primary school. And there was um, a treaty, the Pope at the time drew a line and divided the New World, the dominions of the New World, which today we call the Americas, between Portugal and Spain. And of course, Portugal got what is today Brazil. That is why Brazil speaks Portuguese mm -hmm. and the rest of Latin America speaks Spanish. So that's the, the starting point. And then you go forward in history to something called the the peace at Munster in 1648, where the Netherlands got their independence from Spain. And the Netherlands got their independence and, you know, they got their colonies um, with that independence. And one of their colonies was the Esequibo. So it has a long history, and I intend to do our entire timeline mm -hmm. um, on this matter from the Papal Bull and the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494, all the way to the current day. Once I get the time to do that, um, I'll share that timeline with the public. But what is what is important to us is 2023, not 1494. And the question which begs is what what 
does Mr. Maduro, what is Mr. Maduro's next move? Yeah. It's been 48 hours since the referendum. We are seeing things emerging on our phone about military buildup, about airstrip being built in Venezuela close to the border, about certain towns um, in on the close to the border that are, have a military presence. So, you know, these are things that are floating around. There's even a map floating around that shows Trinidad and Tobago as being once part of something called the Captaincy General of Venezuela, which was an administrative construct of the Spanish Empire. Um, you know, we have to remember that before 1797, we were Spanish in Trinidad. Trinidad was ruled by Spain from its discovery in 1498 to 1797. So Trinidad, yes, Trinidad was once part of something called the Captaincy General of Venezuela. And that map has been sent to me by a number of people saying, look, Venezuela could claim Trinidad and Tobago too. Well, I, I don't think so. Um, but it's good to know the history mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the region didn't drop from the sky. The region is a product of colonial expansion, of the colonial expansion of the Spanish, the Dutch, the British, and the French. Those were the major empires that colonized this part of the world. And um, our history is therefore... Our histories, histories, plural, flow from the activities of these colonial powers, you know, between the 15th century and the 19th century, all the way into the 20th century. So that's why history is important yeah. to yeah. understand. But as I said, we are in 2023, not 1494, where the treaty of to this. And yeah. the question is, what happens next? Right. Mm-hmm. And how does that impinge mm-hmm. on Trinidad and Tobago and the wider region? So I hope I brought some elucidation and context to this whole matter Well, this morning. I can tell you clearly that much of what you've said, there are people who probably heard it for the very first time. Um, and in all the discussions... There's, there's one more thing I want to mention, and this is the rule of law. The rule of law also means the international rule of law. The rule of law doesn't mean it's not limited to the rule of law within your territorial borders. The rule of law means the international rule of law. And we have something called the international system. And the international system is predicated on the United Nations system, the United Nations Charter. And the United Nations has six organs. You know, one of them is the UN General Assembly and and so on. But one of the six organs is called the International Court of Justice which many people refer to as a world court or the highest court in the world. It sits in The Hague in the Netherlands. And the this matter of the boundary dispute has been referred to the International Court of Justice by the UN Secretary General, not by the Venezuelan government or the Guyanese government or CARICOM, by the UN Secretary General, acting in accordance with, acting in accordance with UN... Um, UN law um, and international law and so on. So the matter, when I hear people talk about mediation and negotiations, the matter is before the highest court in the world. And we should allow the highest court in the world, the International Court of Justice, to do its work. Recently, um, as of Friday last week, they ruled um, on this matter of the referendum, not on the matter of the border, and they called on Venezuela to refrain from doing anything that would prejudice the substantive matter, which is the matter of the determination of the border and the validity of the 1899 award. So I just wanted to put this whole this whole idea or this whole institution of the international rule of law on the table, that it is taking its course in accordance with in accordance with international principles of international law. Mm. Venezuela has clearly, they clearly believe that they will not get the outcome they want in the in the International Court of Justice. But that's not how justice works. Um, if you feel that you're not going to win, that doesn't mean that you dispense with the instruments of justice, right? You have to abide by, abide by international law because Venezuela is still a member of the United Nations. So I just wanted to put that whole international law argument on the table. Yeah. It, it, following the, the initial statement from the ICJ on Friday, 
we had both sides claiming that it was a victory. We had Guyana saying that they were successful in stopping Venezuela from doing whatever Venezuela was saying, that well, the, the international court did not stop it from carrying out its referendum. And in fact, Venezuela was saying that the ruling prevents Guyana from antagonizing the situation, including <coughs> extracting anything from the Essequibo region. Um, which, which well, I didn't read. I read the I read the judgment, and I listened to that judgment. Right. It was streamed on UNTV. Mm-hmm. I didn't see anything like that. Okay. Um, what I heard is the judge, Miss Donahue, very forcefully say Venezuela should refrain from anything which prejudices the the determination of the substantive matter. Of course, Venezuela could they could say what they want, right? Um, but if you just do a simple Google search on mm-hmm. that ICJ ruling on Friday, right. with the exception of Telesur, which is the Venezuelan equivalent of CNN, every reputable news source in the world interpreted it like how I just interpreted it, mm-hmm. that the court told Venezuela to cease and desist and to refrain. To stand on. And, I mean, who is the aggressor here? Who is Guyana is not claiming any part of Venezuela. Um, I mean, in, in, in the 1899 award, the claim was for the mouth of the Orinoco and the Esequibo. Um, Guyana is not claiming the mouth of the Orinoco. Um, Guyana is not claiming any part of Venezuela. Venezuela is is claiming Guyana. So um, who is antagonizing and who is irritating the situation? It's, I, I think it's it's a, it's a country which is making the claim. Mm. We need to take a couple of messages to take us up to the top. I know that we have callers who would want to be a part of the discussion. We'll take your calls just after the 8 o'clock news. Um, and when we get back, of course, we continue our discussion. There's so much more that we need to discuss. But the explanation that you gave, the history that you gave of the entire situation is relevant to the discussion because you hear people making comments in a vacuum not necessarily taking into consideration all that has transpired to get the matter to where it is at this point in time on the other side of it as well um i'd like to get from you some of what you think would be the price that would be paid if if actions happen on 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 both sides if venezuela decides to act if they don't decide to act and and all of these things that discussion and more continues with our special guest this morning former energy minister kevin ram narine on the other side of the eight o'clock news a couple messages to take us up to the top and of course uh, on the other side of it we'll be taking your calls as well stay with us The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio, Freedom 106.5. This is the Morning Rumble with Satish Mahabir. Five and a half after eight. And our final hour here this morning. Our special guest with us still, former Energy Minister Kevin Ram Narine. Take some of your calls, 627-3223-625-2257. Hello, good morning. Morning, Satish. Morning, sir. And honorable guest, Mr. Ram Narine. My position is this. We are a democracy. Ghana is a democracy. Venezuela is a dictatorship. And they are no longer a member of the U.S., I think. All I'm asking Guyana to do is to make the necessary arrangements with your friends to protect Guyana against any physical violation of Guyana. So what Guyana has to do is to prepare for the worst. If you want peace, prepare for war. And Guyana has to um, prepare for that situation because you don't trust dictators. And as a matter of fact, the dragon deal is important to us, but there is no dragon deal, right? Thank you. Thank you so much for your call. Let's take another one. You know, we the tries back. 627-3223-625-2257. Hello, good morning. Hello, good morning. Yes, we're here. You go right ahead. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Ramnarine, I just wanted to add this into the mix here and the whole history in terms of um, what he shared. 
I am of the view that looking at, at, at this now is that I don't know if people are aware, but next year is elections in Venezuela. And there's a lot of disenchantment in terms of the people, the populace in Venezuela when it comes to the leadership from Nicolas Maduro. And he's using this as a patriotism front in terms of trying to woo back support. So the actions or perceived actions that would want to, he would want to effect in terms of trying to annex Esikobo is going to be very dangerous. I can put it as being pernicious. It's going to be very harmful, not just to Guyana. It's going to be also be harmful to his own country. One has to remember that given the economic constraint in, in Venezuela, there are seven to eight million people who are no longer in Venezuela from the to the three million population that there is. If God forbid that he do decide to take actions in trying to reclaim or annex uh, Esipogo, we would see a further dwindling in terms of the numbers here in, in Venezuela. So you're going to see more persons leaving Venezuela because we could just imagine the barrage of sanctions that's going to come in Venezuela is one. Two, you're looking at possible NATO involvement. So it's very serious in terms of when you look at it. But I think it's more of a grandiose grand charge in terms of trying to move out support, in terms of a patriotism front as the elections draw. I think it should start somewhere next year, January, thereabouts. And the interesting thing about it is that he would have banned the opposition. The opposition contender would have been contended against him. And of course, the laughable part of it is that his administration would have said, okay, well, we ban you. But you know, you could go before the Supreme Court and see if you could still be eligible. I mean, it's very laughable and comical when you look at it, the seriousness of it. But I think um, the people of Guyana and Caritam and, and, and all over should be not too concerned, but concerned in terms of the development yet. Because I would say this, if Venezuela were to invade Esikubo, it's going to have a serious, harmful effect not just at us, but the entire region. Have a good morning. Okay. Thank you so much for your call. Let's take another one before we get some comments from Mr. Ramnarayan. Hello, good morning. Hello, good morning, Satish. Um, former Minister Kevin Ramnarayan, good morning to you, sir. Uh, I want to thank you for um, imparting your intelligence and your knowledge and experience to us this morning. Um, I didn't even know that Guyana was still owed um, some land um, via the last agreement. Um, I'm learning so much this morning from you. Um, I'm hearing that um, some form of our exodus is already taking place from the region, from persons anticipating um, um, some form of, um, um, you know, confrontation to take place. Um, so I hope, I hope that's not the case. But, um, Kevin Ramline, um, how, there are several energy companies operating in Guyana currently. In the event, um, and I hope this, is, this doesn't happen, but in the event that the, the U.S. does not come anybody's rescue how do you think those energy companies might respond in the event of, of venezuela for example doing what they seem to be setting up to do i'll listen up to you thank you thank you so much for your call let's let's get your responses Mr. Ramnarin. well i mean those energy companies are vulnerable i think um i think the given the two companies involved Exxon and Chevron, I think the, the U.S. would have no choice but to respond militarily if there was any interference with, with Guyana. And I think that is Guyana's greatest strength at this point in time. The, the fact that the U.S. has so much vested interest in that country, and Brazil also has a vested interest in the stabilization of the region. I think um, one of the things that Trinidadians, when they go to Guyana, they mainly go to Georgetown. They very rarely go into the interior. In fact, I could tell you that most of the Guyanese, many Guyanese have never seen the interior of Guyana. Um, I have been to the interior of Guyana on a number of occasions. And it's a massive country. And it shares a border. It shares a, a border with Brazil. And there's a bridge that connects Guyana to Brazil over a river called the Takatu River. And Brazilians and Guyanese freely move 
between the borders of the two countries. And there is a friendly relationship between the two countries. So you talk about the consequences of a Venezuelan invasion. I think not just the United States is going to put its foot down. I think Brazil is going to put its foot down because they would not want to have the region destabilized. Take another call. Hello, good morning. Morning, Dorbasa Trace here. Um, <clears throat> I think the I almost, I am of the view that Venezuela will make an incursion into the Echecubo. It wouldn't be a full-scale um, uh, Iraq into Kuwait kind of thing, but uh, there will be an incursion, a sort of sampling of the response that they would get, and of course the response would have to be measured. It would be because in any case, I don't see them being don't see them being able to occupy the Esequibo and hold it <clears throat> with any kind of integrity. Uh, it would always be suspect that the Guyanese could just go in there, or anybody could go in and help the Guyanese. But I think they would make an incursion there because it would drum up some patriotism in Venezuela, and you know uh, there's a leader in place, so he's going to benefit from that. And then there's that election. And then, of course, if there's an incursion, it affects all of us as if there's a full-scale invasion. So we need to calculate on that basis. I don't know what you think. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, your responses. And, and I just wanted to make another point because a caller referred to the Iran, the Iraq-Kuwait crisis of 1990. The basis of Iraq's invasion of Kuwait was Iraq's allegation or Iraq's suspicion that Kuwait was draining too much oil from a cross-border reservoir called the Romalia field, one of the largest oil fields in the world. And about 10% of that oil field is in Kuwait and 90% was in Iraq. And the Iraqis accused the Kuwaitis of, of overproducing from their little 10%. We have a situation not dissimilar in Trinidad, and that's the Loran Manatee Field. And again, there's nothing that you could do with Venezuela that, that does not incur political risk. So we are very close to Shell making an announcement about the development of the Manatee Field. I think we'll hear that any day now. And we should not forget that the Manatee Field is part of a larger reservoir complex 73% of which belongs to their water. 27% sits in our water. We call that manatee, and we are going to develop that. Now, previous governments, the Passat Bissessa administration, the Manning administration, had pursued the joint development of the Loran Manatee Field in accordance with the United Nations prescribed protocol. That has been dispensed with by the Rowley administration, and they have got an agreement from Venezuela that allows Trinidad to develop their side, which is Manatee, on its own. That's good because we need the gas, and it's a project which you know we, we look forward to. But are we saying that there's absolutely no political risk? I think there's political risk because it you you're draining a reservoir from your side you know and the analogy would be you you have a mango tree on a border between two neighbors and one neighbor has 27% of the mango tree and the other neighbor has 73% of the mango tree but the neighbor that has the 27% is picking the mangoes first naturally a point could be arrived at where the other neighbor will say, you know, you're overpicking the mangoes, right? You're, you're picking into my side now. So I'm saying that there's political risk. And Venezuela is a country which, once it continues along the path that it is on right now, it is always going to be uh, a country that exports political risk. Mm. So we have to be careful, not just with Dragon, but with the Loran Manatee Field. There was, I just wanted to put on record that there was an agreement signed by the Manning administration um, for the unitization of all cross-border fields. And there are three cross-border fields, 
Dragon is not a cross-border field. Dragon sits totally in Venezuela's water. But there are three gas fields which are shared along the southeastern part of Trinidad with Venezuela. One, the largest one is the Loran Manatee Field. So Mr. Manning had an agreement with Mr. Chavez, President Chavez. And then in 2010, shortly after the UNC People's Partnership came into government, there was a signing of the Loran Manatee Unitization Agreement. That agreement, as far as I'm aware, has been dispensed with by Trinidad and Venezuela, which then cleared the path for Trinidad to develop manatee on its own. And I'm simply saying, asking the question this morning, and I hope Shell is listening, is there political risk with our going it alone position on manatee? Is there, and what are the political risks? And I don't think those things are being discussed or ventilated in all these forums you see in the in the Hyatt and so on when the minister and the prime minister speaks and our journalists need to become a little more um a little more probing you know mm. i mean why why doesn't the journalist in Trinidad ask the minister of energy what are the political risks associated with the development of the Manti project he might say there's none Right, but you know, I mean, if you probe deeply into it, there would be political risk. And I, I gave that example of Iraq and Kuwait. That is what precipitated the, the invasion of Kuwait. I'm not saying Venezuela will invade Trinidad, but I'm not saying there's political risk with Manatee. Let's take another call. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Um, good morning. Um, sufficient. Good morning, Mr. Ramnarain. Mr. Ramnarain. I would like to replace the term political risk with commercial opportunity. Reason being, Mr. Amnarine, is this. We do know that the world has an angst with hydrocarbon. And Venezuela is the largest reserve of hydrocarbon in the world. The quicker they can get it out of the ground and monetize it, it's better for them. So I assume that Venezuela would sell us the entire Lauren Manatee field once the price is good, as fast as they could because the faster they get rid of hydrocarbons, it's better for them. Now, secondly, I want to ask you this question, Mr. Amnurain. When the saber rattling started between Caracas and Georgetown, I immediately opined that Mr. Maduro was just doing this because Mr. Maduro saw a situation whereby he was sitting on the largest reserve of hydrocarbon in the world and he couldn't sell a timber. And right next door to him, Georgetown was very happy like puppy, selling billions of barrels of oil, and they're making money. And I think he felt that if he pushed, then the players who are extracting the oil in, 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 in Guyana are going to use their power in Washington and say, allow the boy to sell some oil now. And if they allow him to sell some oil, then he could perhaps delay his push for some 30, 50 years or something like that, and he start to sell some oil and get better. But that was my opinion of it, and it still remains my opinion that he wants those players to use their power in Washington to get him to sell some oil. And listen to your comments. Well, all right, okay, that that's that's an opinion. But um, that aside, if tomorrow America was completely back off, there's and right now the sanctions have been largely lifted. It will take Venezuela. Venezuelan production is now somewhere like around 600, 700,000 barrels of oil per day. It used to be as much as 4 million barrels of oil per day. It will take Venezuela many, many years to get back up to where they were, let's say, 15 years ago with oil production because their oil industry is simply in a very decrepit state. There's been a lack of investment, a lack of maintenance, there are frequent oil spills in Lake Maracaibo and so on. So it is going to take a while for them to get there. And on the other hand, who is the largest oil producer in the world? The largest oil producer in the world is not Venezuela. They may have the largest reserves in the world, but they're not the largest producer of oil in the world by any stretch of the imagination. The largest producer of oil in the world is the United States. And the largest producer of natural gas in the world is the United States a scenario which hitherto did not obtain. So America's growing strength 
with oil and gas production has changed the way America sees the world because now they have a lot more domestic production of oil and gas and there's less need for them to be importing oil and gas from other countries. In fact, when our LNG industry was established in the mid-1990s to the early 2000s, it was predicated on the fact that the U.S., the United States production of natural, domestic natural gas was in significant decline. As a result, the United States had to import natural gas and they were importing natural gas from Trinidad. Now, the United States is the world's largest exporter. Well, they might be the second largest exporter of natural, of LNG in the world. So much so that when Europe had its crisis in 2022 with Russian pipeline supply of natural gas, it was the United States with LNG cargoes that stepped in to fill that, that gap and save Europe from what could have been a disastrous winter. So the world has changed and the way the U.S. views the world has changed. Um, and there was there, there's actually a view that U.S. energy policy and U.S. foreign policy, of course, we all know they are interlinked, as is the case with Trinidad and Tobago. Our foreign, and that's why the foreign ministry in Trinidad and Tobago sits in the same building with the Ministry of Energy. And it has always been that case. Um, the Ministry of Energy and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs have always been neighbors. Um, they were neighbors in Riverside Plaza, and then Mr. Manning moved them to Tower C. So uh, when I was Minister of Energy, Minister Dukaran or Minister um, Rambachan, who were our Ministers of Foreign Affairs, they were right under me in the same building. And the reason for that is that the two ministries have to collaborate. So foreign our foreign policy uh, is heavily linked to our energy policy. And uh, Trinidad is a, you know, that is that is the nature of our of our country that we have to connect the two. And we can't all we can't keep the two separate. Uh, Sir, I know that uh, we went past the time that we were supposed to have you. And this way, yeah, I actually have to run. Yeah, and, um, I, I thought you know, so. So uh, I think um, I think it's a very important discussion, and I think that um, again, I would I would really end by saying nobody knows mm -hmm. what Caracas or Mr. Maduro or the people at Miraflores Palace and so on in Caracas. Nobody knows what will happen in in the coming days or the coming weeks or the coming months. Um, so you know. That is a, so there is room here for dialogue, discussion, and something. I agree with the Prime Minister. We want re to resolve international disputes with dialogue and discussions and not with um, guns and bullets. Mm. Yeah. All right? So, yeah. and, and let the region remain what Mia Motley described it as, a zone of peace. Yeah. I want to thank you for being with us here this morning and for thank giving you us very much. all the information. Always a pleasure to speak with you. The best insight, instant feedback, accountability. The all-new Talk Radio, Freedom 106.5.